Okay, good morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to the Daily Energy Markets uh, podcast, uh, where we daily really usually review the energy markets. But today, as we do every month, uh, I'm delighted to have with me Mike Muller, who is board director at Vital and Viva Energy Australia, and Christoph Rule, senior research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, joining us uh, for the month in review uh, and an outlook uh, uh, ahead and to see what we're expecting in the energy markets uh, and what a month it has been. Um, Mike, let me start with you. Um, you know, we're seeing, we have a headline on our bulletin this morning, which says oil crash sends US speculators fleeing at the fastest pace in six weeks. In early April, we had OPEC Plus coming in to support the market, and all we've seen is negative sentiment. So what is going on? <laughs> I think uh, you're right about the OPEC Plus action causing some short covering. It has been a characteristic of the market this year that we've seen managed money uh, erring on the, on the negative side uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of positioning on oil. And I think it's fair to say that we've had a few signals um, that have uh, helped reinstate that, that negative outlook. Uh, in terms of slightly more disappoint, disappointing consumption data coming out of large important economies such as China, um, and uh, also a view that's been revised, certainly our in-house view has been revised on how much extra oil production is coming into the market in, in the latter half of 2023, uh, which has the world seeing a stock build in the coming months. Uh, although my personal view is that that will give way to a stock draw later in the year, especially when the Asian uh, seasonal demand kicks in towards the end of the year. Um, however, both uh, a view that there's more supply and less demand has some people now saying that the OPEC decision, which looked like a surprise, was maybe based on, on a view that has borne true, that uh, we've seen slightly weaker fundamentals kick in. Now, whether that's uh, worth Brent going all the way down to 75 and at some point last week into the very low 70s, is open for debate. Of course, we are still in the process of releasing SPR in the USA. A lot has been made of the fact that the Americans uh, didn't give the price signal that they had message that maybe maybe might might be forthcoming in terms of uh, what a lot of people are referring to as the SPR put. Um, and uh, as a consequence, uh, you are putting out uh, questions now, which I saw your audience have answered roughly 50-50 on whether at the next OPEC uh, ministerial meeting, OPEC uh, plus, is going to be compelled to take yet more oil of the market. Uh, so to sum up, I guess my view of things is there is a, a slightly more disappointing view of demand and a more adequate view of supply that has given people more reassurance that there's adequate supply. It has especially manifested itself in diesel markets um, where you can see the official data on speculative length. It is, it is not speculative length, it is speculative shorts. People are positioning negative towards that diesel demand. All that against the backdrop of a year where we still, still think we're going to be growing in excess of 1.5, 1.6 million barrels a day, of which a good two thirds is jet demand. And, uh, and yet there is a view fundamentally that there is an adequate amount of oil in the market, despite the fact that oil has gone missing in places like Kurdistan, Nigeria and force majeures and uh, various other, other concerns as well. And I think a couple of areas that have lent themselves to the demand position, sorry, to the supply position that are maybe a bit surprising is there seems to be more oil from the uh, northern, large, large northern Gulf state on the market, backed up by statements from Iran themselves. Um, I think Iraq uh, seems to have compensated for uh, reduced or cancelled Kurdish exports to the north by exporting more from the south. And uh, all in all, there seems to be a view that there's more oil uh, to come from the US exports also. 
Okay, thanks, Mike. Christoph, just your view on, on that in terms of the weakness we've seen in the last few weeks uh, in well, the oil markets. And, and, I mean, has now the market done its, done its, had its reaction, if you like, or could we see more weakness, or has it completely absorbed the, for, the revised forecast for the moment? Well, you see, I should be very pleased because for weeks, we had, for a long time, we had this discussion with me saying oil markets are more likely to come down than up. And China is more likely to be weak than strong, especially in, in this Sunday session, always a theme. But I think beyond that, there's something really important to be learned here in terms of the analytics of the way these forecasts were made. For months now, we have heard, especially the bulls on oil markets, treating the oil market essentially as an appendix to other people's economic forecast. So the story, the narrative we all lived with was Demand is going to be strong, demand is going to be weak, depending on US recovery, depending on China recovery. That was the story. And then the oil market, market and the oil price will follow. And what people have not understood is that there are really two important developments which are independent, which are driven by oil markets and not by the global economy, and which have to do with price. And on the demand side, I think it's pretty obvious now when the actual numbers come in, these months and years of relatively historical perspective, high oil prices have taken their toll. Uh, so the idea that you take a certain oil demand as a fixed relationship to economic growth, and then if economic growth goes up and down, oil demand goes up and down with it without any change, is plain wrong. Because if you have a period of long, high, sustained high oil prices, then that causes demand destruction. And the same economic activity can be satisfied and will be satisfied with less oil demand. And that's what we are seeing now. So on the demand side, there's a suffering, an impact of the high price. It's very simple. And on the supply side, it's even more interesting because remember the other argument for oil prices supposedly going up and staying high, the Goldman Sachs of this world repeat ad nauseum, was always that, and there was a true argument, that the safety buffers in the system were extremely small, meaning there was very little spare capacity and there was inventories potentially under pressure so that any kind of disruption would have resulted in high price spikes. And that causes people to hold oil for inventories for safety reasons, precautionary reasons. Now, with these OPEC cuts, which we have seen the second announcement now, of course, the safety margins in the system, the safety buffers become larger and not smaller. And so the more of these cuts we are seeing, the less this argument that supply is so tight that one has to be careful of price spikes due to any kind of disrupt loses its force. And so as a result, what we are seeing is two forces, demand destruction from high prices and uh, excess supply becoming more abundant, more visible in the system, joining forces. And this means ultimately fundamentals of the oil markets reasserting themselves over this sort of slightly helpless discussion that the oil markets will do whatever the economy will do, which is true to some extent, but only to some extent. And so what we are seeing really on an analytical level is something important. This is oil market fundamentals, as Michael said, reasserting themselves in the long term. This is what matters. All this talk about short sellers, long sellers, speculators, they are fulfilling a beneficial role because they smoothen prices. The more they leave the market, as we see now, the more rocky the adjustment becomes. But at the end of the day, they don't determine where the train is going. They just try to jump on the train like everybody else. It's all market fundamentals reasserting themselves. And they probably you know, point more towers to lowers, you know, 60, 70, then towers 90 or 100. Okay. Well, I mean, on, on those fundamentals, Mike, you mentioned obviously Chinese demand has been a bit less than people thought and the trajectory, more importantly, is might be weaker. 
Um, But only only a month ago, even as prices were sort of stable, people were saying, yes, but the second half, we're going to have to be prepared for, you know, a tight market. We we must be careful that we have enough supply and we've got the spare capacity now within OPEC. Um, Where is, where where on the ground in China now? What's the expected for a second half now, really? Q3, Q4? Do we have to wait till Q4 now to see any boost? Uh, uh, Before it was like by June, we're going to be upwards all the way in China, no doubt. Yes, um, I mean I think it's uh, the, the under, underpinning issues are still construction sector in China, as we've known ever since the Evergrande debacle has uh, has been weighing down on the market, and of course that weighs on sectors such as cement and steel construction and, and diesel demand. Where China has surprised the upside, and the mobility data over the May Day weekend uh, and uh, the Golden Week uh, week sort of bore that out, is that gasoline demand in China is still pretty good. Um, it's possibly just post-COVID mindset of people preferring to get into passenger cars instead of on, on public transport. Um, the, the bit that's really missing from the Chinese demand equation is still long-haul jet travel, long-haul aviation. Um, I said in a previous one of these calls that uh, Beijing International Airport is still very much a quiet place with duty-free shops all closed. Now, that was a few weeks ago, may have changed. But uh, I think it's fair to say globally and in China, domestic air travel is back to pre, pre-pandemic levels, if not above in many places, but long-haul travel is not. And that is a very big chunk of the year-on-year demand that we're looking for. So for Q3, Q4, to answer your question, unless long-haul travel uh, schedules are reinstated or uh, flights added, um, there will be uh, there will be a gap in demand in that jet cast of the barrel. But the other one that's been revised downwards by most uh, observers out there is diesel. Um, diesel obviously being the, uh, the, the engine behind uh, industry, and it's the industrial indicators that have been disappointing across the world. Uh, as opposed to the service sector, which is uh, which is really uh, really looking extremely healthy. Now, some people argue that diesel is a service sector because you know FedEx and Amazon parcels get carried around on trucks that run on diesel. But uh, for the most part, that is where people are revising diesel demand down to a point where year-on-year demand for diesel uh, globally, 23 versus 22, is really down to just one or two hundred thousand barrels a day now in some people's minds, and it's gasoline that's picking up the slack. And you can see that manifest itself in the in the cracks. Uh, gasoline looking healthier. And diesel not. Um, but another thing that's happening in global supply demand is refining margins have moved to a point now where people are talking about run cuts in certain areas, certainly for simple capacity. And that's normally a big normalizer. I mean, markets have a habit of fixing themselves. So in a, in a world where there is a bit too much diesel around, including, including Russian diesel afloat, of course, um, refiners back off and then suddenly that equation is fixed. The final thing that's weighing down on oil is gas. Because if you, if you pull up a gas price and you see the US Henry Hubbard just above $2 per MMBTU, that's obviously been weak all along, but the international price of LNG has also come come down and really moved in a very different way. So after the OPEC announcement that took Brent to $86, $87 a barrel, um, gas didn't really go with oil at that point. And gas has been weak to a point where LNG is now competitive with low sulfur fuel into utilities. And uh, we have to remind ourselves that a large amount of oil demand has been dis- a large amount of sorry, oil demand has been boosted by oil displacing LNG in power generation. And LNG now has a chance of featuring in those South and Southeast Asian economies where it has been shunned for the best part of the last uh, last year and a half. Yeah, and of course, we need that demand to come through to pull that LNG in. But of course, nothing like last winter where you had this fear of competition with Asia. And yet, of course, that Asian demand didn't materialize. Christoph, let's talk a little bit about a well, part of the Chinese economy recovery is, of course, to do with exports to the US, the consumer goods, etc., uh, give us the sentiment at the moment in America on, on that. I mean, in the light of Fed decisions going forward, we just saw their recent rate hike as expected. And this whole debt uh, ceiling 
debate that's you know coming up uh, to a conclusion in a couple of weeks how much is that weighing on confidence sentiment for u.s economic growth etc it's weighing on sentiment but sentiment is, is volatile first let me say two things on china the the problem there is not you know this lack of demand for oil from china is not jet fuel demand what is transport fuel maybe 50 percent 60 percent of that jet demand maybe another 10 percent of that in china the problem is that the recovery in China was never to be like this big explosion as we had seen in the US before, because there have not been these monetary transfers during the lockdown period. It's a very simple story. In the US and to some extent in Europe, consumers' pockets were bursting, filled with transfers when they were released from the lockdown. And of course, people spent it also on travel. In China, you know, people may have saved a little bit, but not, not to that extent. And so the lockdown period just integrates itself into the trend growth decline, which we're seeing in China, which has not stopped. And that's what we see in the diesel numbers. And that's why they are really, as Mike says, are significant. In the US, I think we are still, US economists, one of, one of them called it an extremely opaque economy, very hard to read. And I think it's true. My take for what it's worth would still be that we are maybe technically bordering a recession, which just means two, two quarters of, of uh, low growth or low negative growth, but it would still be on a very high level. We just have seen unemployment data coming in. It is a full employed economy. It's humming at most cylinders. Some of these export disruptions are painful for Europe and China, but not as much for the US, because remember, they gave themselves this, this huge program of subsidized uh, replacement of chips, of green energy, of all kinds of things, which tends to even attract inward investment from places like, like Europe. Uh, and so the trade disruptions have not hit the US badly as they would hit China and Europe. And uh, the consumer spending still goes strong. The domestic market large enough for driving and other oil demand components to play an independent role. So I don't see the, the really dark clouds there. The risks come from the financial sector. The risks come from this system, which they have you know, of a lot, large number of small banks, which are vulnerable under circumstances like these. And a deposit insurance system, a federal agency where everybody can shift the blame to, and which at some point will become overburdened in Europe, banks are in better shape. And we don't have a federal agency like that, which would act as a lender of last resort. And therefore, the pressure is, is less. And in China, they have, they have nothing of that sort, of course. So the risks comes from financial and therefore market volatility that probably we should expect more of. And then waves of optimism and pessimism adjusting to the data as always. But the data itself themselves are not indicating a recession in the sense of a severe event. You know, as I said it before, if you have a recession with three or four percent unemployment, I take that recession any day, you know, because it's the term denotes something which is not translating in something bad in real life, and people look out of the window. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose so, so, so the U.S. economy is still sort of very strong and, and not being impeded too much by very high oil prices, which is also, I suppose, a, a positive thing. Gasoline demand yeah. is is pretty weak in terms of being at the start of the driving season as well, but it's it's it seems to be stable in that sense. From a, uh, we'll talk a bit about Europe um, uh, as well a bit later. But uh, Mike, you mentioned. Um, uh, Iran and supply. Let's look at the supply equation. There doesn't seem to be any panic about supply, enough supply for the for the world at the moment. But there has been a lot of PR, at least, talk of oh, Iran is now hitting new records and production exports. You know how 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 positive or accurate uh, can we feel about that? Is that is that is it more than what's really happening on the ground? 
It's a bit uh, tough to say because, as uh, well, sitting in this company I'm working for, I don't have first-hand information, of course. Um, but we have seen the statements that you echoed in your in your daily uh, news uh, bulletins uh, of uh, of Tehran ex uh, expressing a uh, an update that they are exporting uh, more oil than ever, and uh, one can try and put two and two together in terms of those destinations for that oil, um, notably China, that uh, the market is perhaps not quite as strong for the heavier end of the crude barrel as you might expect at a time when China should be gearing up for bitumen season and, and greater demand later in the year. Um, as for Iraq, that's a bit more tangible because of course we've all seen the, uh, the ruling in the, in the court in Paris uh, playing out over the export of Kurdish crude to the north. And there are many companies, some of them listed of course, who've come out with declarations of their production being shut in for the best part now of 40, 45 days or so. Um, and those flows have, have historically amounted to 400,000 barrels a day plus. So I saw something anecdotal, which I can't describe to anybody. So take it with a pinch of salt here, but uh, that uh, it does appear like the overall balance for the country of Iraq has been, uh, has been addressed in terms of Iraq simply dipping into their spare quota that uh, Christoph was talking about before and exporting a little more to the south. If that is indeed the case, of course, that will then uh, serve to settle nerves over, over supplies in the north. And it would also jive perhaps with uh, some talk that... Uh, the Chinese had undernominated uh, for liftings from other GCC producers in the previous month. Um, it is difficult to do a mass balance on this, of course, but I think it is fair to say that the best part of two, three, four hundred thousand barrels a day of production has been progressively shut in. In some cases, there was buffer in the system, so certain Kurdish fields would have had spare capacity. And of course, they would be heavily incentivized to fill up all refining capacity domestically, both in northern Iraq and in, in the Kurdish refinery in order to, uh, to at least take up some of that slack and not leave it in the ground as, as lost production. But all in all, I think the point I was trying to make at the beginning of this call was that compared to maybe a month ago, um, there has been less oil that's gone missing from that country as a whole, including Kurdistan, uh, uh, than maybe was the case in people's minds uh, this time last month. Okay, and then just sticking with you, Mike, we'll just look at that survey question, then I want to just go back to you about Russian uh, production. What would it take to convince short sellers to stop pressuring oil prices? Okay, this is the whole sort of technical side of they have still been in the market selling in the last few weeks. Um, another OPEC... Can we, can we have a... Can, we need a third option, which is both. <laughs> yeah, which yes, is none. A bit of both. Which is which is well, what which is which is the stronger of the two? I suppose. What would it take to convince? That, do we need another OPEC cut announcement or upward revisions in demand? What will be? What would have more influence? Let's say uh, on short sellers. Mike, just sticking with you uh, and just talking about in terms of supply. We talked about Iran, Russia. Anything different? We're in the middle of the second quarter. Uh, anything different you see as a trend going forward from now uh, on? compared to last year, where we've seen Russian products and crude continue to flow to new directions maybe, but that half a million cut also not necessarily evident in the market yet. It, it, it's awfully hard to tell. Um, again, it's all secondhand information because we're not participating in many of these flows, but um, it would appear that the, the cuts announced by Alexander Novak about a month ago in sympathy with the OPEC plus cuts and just a few days after um, has yet to be substantiated. Um, there was a consensus in the market that they, they would go through with it. And of course, the question, as always with Russian, is, is will it be crude or will it be products? Because Russian products exports are substantial also. Um, I think it's fair to say that we've had a very large uh, accumulation on the water of Russian product in particular, both fuel and diesel, and to a much lesser extent, naphtha. Those are the three main products that come out of Russian ports. 
Um, and that's been necessitated by the realignment after Europe banned all imports uh, with their last late, last round of, of, uh, of uh, measures, uh, whereby that oil now has to, has to flow 20, 30 days longer voyages towards the east. But it's not just been sitting on the water in, in transit, because um, that would just mean 20, 30 days of stock build. In many cases, there's been the indecision around where do we send this oil or will it will it find a market, uh, a buyer which is happy to um, uh, to be assured via um, by the uh, necessary attestations that the price cap has indeed been observed or not. And the slice of the market, so the, the share of the market that has been uh, willing to take Russian oil uh, without that attestation, without having some confirmation, uh, is finite, of course. And we have to remind ourselves it's not the refiner uh, or the consumer of the diesel fuel or naphtha that is, that is really on the, on the chopping block here. It's the service providers. In some cases, uh, in terms of insurance, certainly, it's very hard to find a service provider that doesn't have some sort of nexus to the G7. So it's insurance, it's banking, and it's shipping. And um, we still don't have a, a world which has figured out a way of making Russian oil flow to those markets that are willing to take it uh, and accept uh, the risks that go with um, breaching price cap. Just to remind, if you are buying or selling Russian oil in excess of the price cap, which for diesel has been the case for much of the last few months, um, you have to find a shipping company, an insurance company, and a bank that are willing to live with the potential consequences of sanction by G7. And that is not uh, not, not for everyone. So I think the, the amount of Russian oil on the water is still a very big um, component. Of course, it serves as a reassuring factor to go to Christoph's uh, train of thought that uh, it's, it's there as supply will come to market one day. Um, but that's been the major, the major stock change in the last few months, along with a continued high inventory set in China. Everywhere else in the world, the inventories are actually relatively lean. Okay, uh, Christoph, given the balanced sort of picture that we have now on fundamentals, uh, by all accounts, no worries of tightness, you know, why wouldn't OPEC just even just to sort of boot, could have kind of push that sentiment of, of a bit more bullish sentiment, if you like, going forward on prices? Why wouldn't they not cut again, uh, announce a cut in June? Well, they may, you know, if anybody's ooching at the moment, it's them. But uh, let's get the, the, the background bit straight. And it's actually much more straightforward. Russia has uh, announced months ago this 500,000 cut as a crude oil cut. That has not materialized yet. So if I would be the rest of OPEC Plus, I would be wondering what's going on there. Be, be a little bit upset, perhaps. And secondly, Russia has not enough storage capacity to really deal with this massive shift when the embargo of products kicked in. Russia is a huge exporter of diesel, as we all know. And as Mike describes, there's a larger floating storage now because the redirection of products turned out to be much more difficult. But the lack of storage capacity and the problem that the fighting margins are coming down everywhere in the world means that potentially there's a lesser demand for crude oil from inside Russia for refining purposes. System gets clocked up and that explains why the crude oil exports have not been cut at this point. Third one in this in this development, Novak last week, the Russian energy minister, went public and says, we will implement this cut. And this seems to be the sil sort of silent under the surface switch from a cut as it was originally sort of crude oil products uh, exports in, of, into product exports. That we will see almost automatically because they don't have the capacity to really get rid of all these products quickly enough. And then they will sort out over time what the mix between crude oil products will be of that cut. But basically, 
what happens with this with these falling prices from an OPEC perspective must also be that Russia is hurting very much. And in that point of the equation, the normal discussion has to pause for a moment and we have to think about other factors such as the war. Nobody knows, and I'm not going to speculate what this Ukrainian counteroffensive will bring with it. But I certainly would not exclude if Russia gets into trouble militarily, that they would use the, the, the oil option in order to sort of to wreak more havoc into Western economies, to threaten with a, with a recession, to get people on the streets demonstrating against the costs of the supporting Ukraine and so on and so forth. This is also a scenario which has been with us for a year. They will use the oil weapon if they have to. And the more the oil price comes down and the more uh, OPEC plus sort of maneuvers on a, on, a, on a reactive mood rather than being strategically, as seems to be the, the, the case with this last cut, the more difficult it will be for them to, tempt, to, to resist the temptation of Russia, at least verbally throwing around its weight as an oil producer. And that is an unknown. And I would think that this will keep oil prices on edge and preventing prices from going down in a straight line into the 70s or something. And they may, for that reason, short term tick up again. So we should not think we have solved the puzzle now because oil demand is uh, is weakening and supplies are plentiful and therefore oil markets will settle into a new range of prices around 70 or something. We, should, we have to be looking at this Ukrainian war because it is uh, the situation is coming to a head there and Russia has still control over a substantial amount of exports. Well, I mean, that would be good, good, good for like, the rest of them, but the Gulf countries would be happy if there's a bit of a bit of upward uh, momentum there because of Russia, not, uh, you know, it you makes, know, it makes the puzzle. It makes the puzzle harder to solve, yes. Yeah, yeah. Christoph, sorry, just sticking with you, I don't know if you addressed part of my longer question earlier, which was to do with this debt ceiling in the US. I did want to get your thoughts on it. Uh, you're not going to uh, predict which way the vote goes, obviously, in two weeks' time, but how important is that vote to equity markets, what we're seeing in Fed policy, and any ripple effect, obviously, on that? From that? This, is, this is extremely important, and this is something... It's very, very hard to understand how a sophisticated country like the U.S. or world economy can have this kind of situation. The last time this happened in that uh, that narrow narrow situation yeah. was was 2011. Yeah, and it almost led it led to a downgrade of the U.S. debt. It almost led to if the U.S. financial system collapses because the government can't pay its bills. It's a very hypothetical if, but if that happens, then the world economic system, based on the dollar and all of this, will collapse with it. Uh, and so the stakes are enormous. And still, you have a situation in which in the House of the Senators from the House of Representatives, a tiny majority could derail this. Yellen, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, the finance minister, basically has warned for months now that in June, the government's ability to pay its bills will cease if there's no agreement on the debt ceiling. The uh, the Republicans have put a bill forward to the House of to for the for the Senate to sign for the Democrats and ultimately the president to sign off, which says yes, we agree the debt ceiling has to be widened, but only if the following cuts are implemented. And there comes a list of cuts which are completely unpalatable to Democrats. So this is dead on arrival; will never be signed. And now there is a stalemate, and individual senators from districts where public sentiment is such as to say, "What do we care?" Uh, you know, hardcore right-wing people who don't who don't really who would gleefully see the system in Washington collapse uh, have the possibility and, and do support individual senators who have the capacity to block the system. If we are lucky, if the world is lucky, 
These senators find a very high price one way or another, which they can extract. And with this pound of flesh, they will give their, their agreement to lifting the debt ceiling. But if the world is unlucky and the system really comes to a stalemate, then there will be huge financial instability. I still fail to believe that they could let the system collapse because of something like yeah. this. But but the, the the administrative, the organizational setup is such that it's hard to, see, hard to see a way out except for some political compromise. Yeah, well, I think they'll reach that, uh, they, you know, rather than sacrifice the, 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 the collapse of the dollar or the economy, uh, they'll, the obstinate people come. But again, it's just kicking the can down the road, isn't it, again, on, on this whole debt yeah. issue. Uh, let's just look at the result then before I go back to Mike for closing uh, comments. So, oh, that's not a... 50-50 <laughs> doesn't count. Anyway, that that's, shows that it's flex. That that's it's Mike's two options. And, 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 yeah, we do need to see that... Uh, those upward revisions. Mike, I mean, on that sort of revisions of demand, if you like, I mean, OPEC um, themselves, I think their, their recent uh, forecast is 1.7 global demand for the year. You've got the IEA still being a bit more bullish, uh, despite the signals we've had on fundamentals, on, on China growth, etc. Um, why are we seeing still quite a divergence of opinion on, on demand going forward, uh, do you think, uh, uh, and secondly, I want to know if you're seeing any reverberation in Asia uh, from, from this U.S. debt thing. Are people nervous? Are all markets nervous, et cetera? Uh, on your last question, a very short answer, no. I think people assume the U.S. will resolve it, as was the case in 2011, when most people in financial markets in Asia said, well, what was that all about? Um, yeah. But Christopher shed some light on, on the complexities there. So, I mean, let's hope it goes away. Um, on the demand outlook, I think I think consensus, I mean, as it should, as we come towards the middle of the year, is converging on that OPEC level of 1.7 million barrels a day, year-on-year demand growth. But we have to remind ourselves that almost exactly half of that is in the bag in terms of domestic air travel. So, so that's not really the, the variable. The big variable is diesel demand. And on that one, people's estimates are still all over the show. And it depends a lot on, uh, on inventory policy in the one place I mentioned before that has inventory, which is China. And that's closely linked, of course, to government policy. Um, and uh, some of the signals there have uh, have, have been out of um, out of tune with precedent. Uh, at the end of last year, when there was this big edict to export more, that appeared to be a um, a head of party Congress uh, effort to to boost the trade balance in some way. Um, so, I mean, I've always been on the bullish side of the spectrum, and Christoph on the other end, of course, when it comes to China. Um, I think there is a seasonal uptick in Asian demand that always happens just down to down to winter demand and the nature of the Asian market, which will give the uh, the year to date uh, lagging demand year on year a, a big boost come Q4. I do see a deficit, all things being equal, even if OPEC don't take extra oil off the markets uh, in early June, which, as Christoph said, they might. Um, so I think Q3, we could flip from being stock build mode to being in a stock draw mode again. And on that basis, I think the market had priced in that forward stock draw um, and then started changing their mind when it came to light that demand in the short term is a little disappointing. But I haven't seen any any really major needle moving disappointment in demand that justifies the market getting out of uh, out of length, as as would be suggested by the sell off from eighty six, eighty seven dollars down to seventy two dollars fifty on Thursday night. Um, it feels uh, it feels a lot. And therefore, we tend to look at money markets to explain this instead. So it's rather than looking at oil supply demand, which we focused on in this call, I think there's more of a macro view there on just negative sentiment around GDP, fear of recession, and people shifting money wholesale out of oil, which has in some cases served as an inflation hedge to people that maybe want to deploy that money elsewhere. Yeah, as you said, I mean, we, had, we saw Warren Buffett announcing in the Q1, they withdrew, I don't know how many 
several billion dollars just from the market itself. So there is a nervousness around generally. But it's, the, the China storage uh, point that you made, it has obviously massive storage, the biggest in the world. But there was some comments last week on our on our show that that is actually almost at capacity right now. Is that the case, do you think? Are we, there's very little sort of net storage at the moment in the system because they've been buying quite a bit of oil, haven't they, in Q1? There's actually no such thing as official data, right? So... There's commercial storage in the hands of uh, private and, and public government companies. There's strategic storage. And then there's on the water oil uh, in terms of ships waiting to discharge or water or oil on the way. Um, and then, of course, there's oil held in title because a lot of the Chinese trading companies uh, have extensive trading networks that also possess storage in, in OECD. Um, so if you take all that together, it's, it's difficult to say that it's completely full, but inventories are definitely high. By what we can piece together. Yeah. Mike Muller, thank you so much. And Christoph Rule, thanks both of you so much for joining us on this Sunday morning uh, for the outlook for uh, the outlook ahead and, and the month in review. And it's been quite an interesting month. So let's see what what uh, what comes next. Thanks so much and have a good remainder of your weekend.